to look in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. Amen? Now you can be seated. We're a little out of order in Exodus. We jumped from last week, Pastor Fred preached on chapters 5 and 6, so we're just going to skip all those chapters in the middle and go straight to 20. That's not true. Uh, I, I spoke to Justin. He was cool with this, so, so we're still in Exodus, but we're jumping a little forward to talk about one specific verse in Scripture where God gives us this directive, this command. I am going to back up and reread this a little bit, but I'm going to start verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The introduction to this message, to this bit of scripture, is true for the Hebrew nation, for the Hebrew people, but isn't it just as true for us today, that this, this message of uh, God spoke these words, I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord. I am sovereign. I have everything in control. Nothing happens without my direction, without my authority. There is none greater than me. There is no power equal to me. I am the Lord. We saw this last week, and Pastor Fred preached several times this reiteration of I am the Lord. God announces who He is. Right? Why does He do that? Because we need to hear it. We need to understand who God is. And He announces that to us. And then He follows with I am the Lord, your God. He is intimate. Yes, He is sovereign. He is over all things, but He is intimate with us. We have a personal relationship to the sovereign God Almighty. In John chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus says, My sheep know My voice. I call them by name. He knows our name. And you know, that's kind of a kind of thing we gloss over. Yes, He knows Kyle Rell. Yes, He knows everything about me. But He called me by name. At that time when the Holy Spirit revealed Himself to me in such a way that I could not deny it any longer, He called me by name. Kyle, I want to have a personal, individual relationship with you. Not sacrificing who He is as God, but bringing that into a relationship with Him. He says, uh, God says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I have rescued you from bondage. This is what I have done for you. I am the Lord. I am sovereign. I am your God. I'm personal. I'm intimate. And this is what I've done for you. I've rescued you from bondage. Now, to the Hebrew people, this was a literal, physical, I had been in bondage, beaten, scourged, had to work at hard labor, had to do this thing for, for hundreds of years, and yet you've rescued this people out of that. Well, is that message true for us today? I, I, I wasn't beaten at work. 
I didn't have to work from sunup to sunrise. I didn't have to do those things. I didn't have that form of bondage. Did I have bondage? Yes. I had spiritual bondage. I was bound to something that I was serving that was never going to fulfill me. And he rescued, he redeemed. The, the guys are all wearing the same t-shirt. We're all also wearing dog tags uh, this morning uh, that went to the retreat. And on that dog tag, it says redeemed. That's how we identify. We are redeemed. He has rescued us from that bondage to where we are today. So God has announced who he is and what he has done. Now let's get into the command, no other gods before me. This weekend, we talked a lot about the military and uh, what, it was, what, it, what it is like in the, in the military and how those analogies work in a real spiritual way. One of the things we didn't talk about, but this is true about the military, there's different types of orders, right? You can get a direct order. Go from this place to this place. Move that thing from here. Do this at this time. That's a direct order I'm giving you to do right now. Then there's standing orders. These things are true for a period of time. One of those things is the uniform of the day. What what am I going to wear? See, that was the thing when I became a civilian. I had to figure out what I was going to wear every day. I didn't even tell me that, right? So the standing order is the uniform of the day. For this period of time, you're going to wear this thing. And then from this period of time, you're going to wear this. That's a standing order. But then you have general orders, These general orders are true all the time, everywhere, for every branch of the military, they're the same. They don't change, they always are in place. The commandments that God gives us are like our general orders. They don't change. The same general orders that are true for Grace Church of Ovilla this morning are true for the churches in Asia. The churches in Africa, the churches in Latin America, those are our general orders. Those are are things that are always true. So one of the things in boot camp they make you do is memorize your general orders. What is your fourth general order? And you have to be able to to recite that back to them, right? It's that important. So shouldn't our general orders, the commandments that God gives that are consistent, be the same thing? Shouldn't we bind those in our heart to where we know that they're true? So the first one of those is have no other gods before me. Now, I think what happened is God said, hey, here's these 10 things. Put them in whatever order you want to, Moses. Just make sure they're written down. You think that's what happened? No. God is sovereign. We just said that, right? So he gave Moses, these are exactly what, this is exactly what I want you to say, and this is exactly how I want you to say it. So the very first command is have no other gods before me. Well, why would that be the first command? Well, the reason is, God is announcing here that He knows our desire, our passion, to follow other gods. To pursue and to flirt with other gods. There are other things that draw our attention, and He knows our proclivity to do that. So His first command is, don't do that. Have no other gods before me. Part of that desire, that that flirting we have with other gods, is our rejection of submission to Yahweh, to Jehovah God, right? We, We have, because of our sin nature, a desire to reject that submission. 
And the enemy tries to use that rejection to say, if you reject that submission, then you can have this wonderful thing over here. You can have this other God over here that you serve. But what the enemy doesn't tell you, the lie that is there, is when I reject this submission, I'm actually exchanging that for a submission to another thing. You know, we in America like to have our independent freedom. I like to be able to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. And I'm a Texan. I love Texas. When I met Sil, she's from South Carolina. I asked her, when did y'all study Texas history? <laughs> Everybody should study Texas history, right? And as Texans, we really like our personal freedom. We like our independence, right? So we have that nature in us. But the reality, the reality is when we reject submission to God, we're exchanging that for submission to something else. And that's a lie that the enemy gives us. So let's define what those other gods are. If he says have no other gods, well, what do you mean by that? What is another god? What would I follow? You know, and it's easy for us as Christians to identify some of those gods. Allah, Buddha, the million gods that they have in India, whatever. It's, it's easy for us to say, yeah, yeah, that's another god, and I'm not going to follow that. That's ridiculous. I wouldn't do that. So it's easy for us to, to see that. And so we can often say to ourselves, well, if I'm not doing that, I'm in good standing with God. I'm, I'm not worshiping Allah. I must be in a right relationship with God. Everything's cool. Is that true? No. There are other gods that we can serve. Ravi Zacharias has a book called uh, Jesus Among Secular Gods. And I have found that, that the, the words that he spoke are so true, supported in Scripture, that the Bible tells us that there is a truth, right? A truth, the truth, one truth. Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. So what is the other God that we can serve that we, we would reject the submission to the truth? So what other submission would we be accepting? That's relativism. We can serve a God as relativism. Well, as Christians, we say, well, I wouldn't do that. Well, what is relativism? Relativism is what is true for you is not necessarily what's true for me. Right? And at the outset of that, we can say, well, that's ridiculous. That's, that's, as believers, we don't feel that. But do we flirt with that? When we reject uh, confronting this thought process, when other people have this thought process, and we reject that, we, we reject confronting that, we're actually affirming that that's true. Right? Passive Christianity is affirming what other people believe. We have to understand that we have an active faith and we need to participate in that. Uh, relativism preaches situational ethics. In this situation, it's okay for me to do this thing. And that's where as believers it's dangerous that we're flirting with this God. Of, well, you don't understand. I was in this particular situation, so I couldn't do this particular thing. Money is really tight this week. I can't tithe. That's a situational ethic, 
right? Um, I, I, I talk about pornography quite a bit because I had an issue with that and uh, still have an issue with that. I'm still drawn to lust of the flesh once in a while. And so I, it's, for me to say I don't deal with that anymore would be a lie and that would not uh, honor God is that he's given me deliverance from that. But, but pornographer, people who engage in that is, well, my spouse does not give me the intimacy and fulfill the desire that I have. So situationally, it's okay. I'm not having an affair. So it's okay for me to do this. Situational ethics, it's okay. As Christians, as believers, we can fall into that. By acknowledging the truth, the only truth, the way and the life, we can dispel this false God that relativism is. One of the things that Daniel spoke about this weekend at the men's retreat was the whole armor of God. We're wearing these t-shirts to say the whole armor of God. And it starts with the belt of truth. Again, there's an order to things and there's a reason there's an order to things. The belt of truth is the foundation for all other weaponry. Right? So his, who is the truth? Who is this belt that we put on? It's Jesus. That's the truth that, that is our foundation. So if we don't engage in that truth... We're supporting this false God of relativism. Here's another God that we can flirt with. Hedonism. Whatever makes me happy, whatever brings me pleasure is okay. Now, sometimes we think of hedonism as this weird sexual perversion thing that's going on and all that stuff. But that's not really what it is. It's, it's seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake. There's a false doctrine in Christianity, and you'll hear Christians say this, God wants me to be happy, right? I challenge you, if you have that thought process, find that in Scripture and bring it to me. Jesus promises that there's going to be persecution. This is not a happy, warm, fuzzy feeling. There is a, a, a glow that comes on a believer, but it's not this happiness mentality that we have. Um. There's a, I don't remember who the author is, but he talked about this thing called the pleasure machine. Imagine this machine that existed that if you plugged in your mind, you could replicate any pleasure sensation that you wanted. I, I, I want to know what it feels like to, to win a gold medal in the Olympics. I want to know what it feels like to, to cure cancer. But instead of actually doing that thing, I'm just going to plug into this machine and it's going to make me feel those, those things that come from that. Right? Do you see that? This is the trap that addicts fall into. Right? I want to seek this pleasurable feeling, so I'm going to do this thing, and it's going to give me that. The issue with this is the pleasure God will never be satisfied. That's the trap of an addict. Never be satisfied. You can never fill that hole. Sill calls this the God-sized hole. Nothing will ever fill that except for God Almighty. Uh, in, in Roman times, there were different kinds of slaves. There was the type of slave that they went to an area and they, they overtook this area and captured people. That was a kind of slave. If you were born into slavery, that was a kind of slave. But there was a kind of slave where if I was in debt and I couldn't pay that debt, I could sell myself over to slavery 
and that debt would be paid, and I would just live in slavery. That particular type of slave was called an addict. That's what an addict is, selling themselves over to that. So you're sitting there saying, well, I don't drink. I'm not an alcoholic. I, I, I don't thrive on illicit drugs. I'm not engaged in illicit behavior. So I'm good. I don't have an addiction. I would challenge you to say, what do you do? What, do, what, what illicit behavior, what sinful behavior do you engage in on a consistent basis, hoping that that pleasurable feeling that comes over you is going to fulfill this break in you, this, this hole, this, this emptiness in you? I think as, as, a, as believers, what we do is we confuse pleasure with joy. One of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Love, joy, peace, patience, right? Joy. We have joy. God gives us joy. But we confuse that with pleasure. I want pleasure. But it's never going to take the place of joy that we can rest in. I think of uh, biblical support of this hedonism is David and Bathsheba. David was king. He had access to to. to Everything. He was a man after God's own heart. But being in the wrong place at the wrong time and seeing Bathsheba bathing, he was drawn to that. He was drawn to the pleasure that that was going to provide. And that ended up very well for him, did it not? No, it didn't. Because again, that pleasure God will never be satisfied. Another God that we can follow as believers is secular humanism. Now, there is Christian humanism. C.S. Lewis was a proponent of Christian humanism. But secular humanism is a different thing. The American Humanist Society defines humanism as humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without theism and other supernatural beliefs, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. Now, one of the things you find in these false gods is there's kind of an overlap, right? We're going to talk about atheism in just a minute, but humanism kind of breaches over into atheism when it says, without theism and without supernatural beliefs. Right? Let's, let's take that off the table. Why would we take that off the table? Because if we take that off the table, we're not accountable. We're not accountable to anyone who is going to judge us. Right? So humanism, and I think it's funny, humanism is a progressive philosophy. We use this term progressive in today's society, and, and it sounds cool. Progressive means I'm thinking, I'm on the cutting edge, I'm moving forward. I'm thinking on a higher plane than everybody else. I'm progressive, right? Sounds cool. But is that really what the progressive movement is showing? You look at the beliefs of the progressive movement, and it's sin. It is sin. And so we have to recognize that for what it is. So this progressive philosophy of life that without theism, without God, and without supernatural beliefs and beliefs in miracles and all of that, without that belief, then, then where are we left? 
Well, we're left with uh, affirming our ability and responsibility. So the affirmation, where does that affirmation come from? If I've, if I've sang without theism, without supernatural beliefs, where does that affirmation come from? Well, it either comes from myself, right? Or it comes from other people, right? But that's all a feeling. That affirmation is all based on a feeling. Our feelings betray us. Right? Have you ever felt that you're not good enough? I'm just not good enough. If God really saw who I was, He wouldn't love me anymore. Right? We have all felt that way at one time. Is that what the Word says? What does the Word say? There is therefore how much condemnation? No condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So we understand that we are good enough. God demands perfection. We are perfect in His sight through the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? So, so, so we, we don't lack anything. We are good enough through the blood of Jesus Christ for who we are in Christ. So that feeling that we get that we're not good enough, we have to compare that to the truth. That's where we get with feelings. If I have a feeling, let me compare that to what the truth says. And if my feeling is contrary to the truth, then my feeling has no support. Now, that doesn't mean that we can switch this, uh, uh, flip the switch and say, well, I just won't feel that anymore. Right? But it does give us a, prog- a process by saying, I'm going to fight this feeling because I know what the truth says. So it, uh, the responsibility, uh, humanism says, the responsibility to lead ethical lives. Well, who defines ethics? Somebody's got to, if, if there's an ethical rule, somebody has to define what that ethical rule is. Humanism says society as a whole, people as a whole come together and define what that ethic is. Okay, well, here's the tension with that. If this society defines ethical behavior as this, and you go across the world and this society defines ethical behavior as this, and they're contrary to each other, who wins? Who gets to decide which one is right? That's the awesome thing about these general orders, the commandments that God gives us, is we don't have to worry about who defines ethics. He has defined it for us. Right? That's the, we, we look at the Ten Commandments sometimes as rules as don't do stuff. But, but, they're, but, but isn't it awesome that He's given us this standard where we don't have to worry about what's right and wrong? Secular humanism is a God, as Christians, we can flirt with. We can pursue that. My mind should be able to tell me what's right and wrong because it doesn't feel right. Right? We get into that danger of feelings. We're back where we were with relativism. What's true for me is not necessarily true for you. Another false god is atheism. Well, as believers, like, we don't ever fall into this group. What is atheism? This is my definition. This is not anybody else's definition. It's not just the rejection of Jehovah as God, but rejection of the idea that anything like that could even be true. Right? So that's atheism. A means opposite of or without. Atheism. Atheism is without God. 
right? So, but as a believer, I could never come anywhere near flirting with this. Well, there are seven leaps that an atheist has to make to justify their thought process. That everything came from nothing. Right? That's a leap that they they have to reconcile to justify their faith. Right? Well, as a believer, have you ever tried to reconcile in your mind that, that maybe this evolution thing is true? When you stand on the truth, you realize that it's not. But sometimes as believers, we can kind of fall into these thought processes. Order came from chaos. I love this analogy that I heard a long time ago. A tornado whips through a salvage yard and ends up with a Maserati. (laughs) Right? Isn't that ludicrous? But that's actually what what the, the theory of evolution proposes, that out of all this chaos came order. Harmony from discord. Again, things are confused and this beautiful harmony exists. Life came from non-life. This sludge produced amino acids that somehow produced life. That's a leap that they have to make. Reason came from irrationality. Personality came from non-personality. There was this blank slate and your sense of humor and all these things were created. Now, here's the cool thing if you think about it. They will never use this term. But really, it's the only thing that defines this leap. Miraculous. Right? Through, through some miraculous event, this order came from chaos. That's really their only response is somehow that happened. Now, as believers, we know who the source of miracles is. Right? So atheism is that false God that we can flirt with as believers. And we have to come to an understanding that just because I prayed this morning and just because I worshiped this morning means that I'm not in danger of any of those things. To not actively engage with God as who He is, we are passively accepting this atheistic attitude. Um, a very dear friend of mine talking about witnessing and, and uh, um, serving and and trying to serve atheists has said that oftentimes we see atheists as the enemy. And the same can be true for uh, those in the faith of Islam or Buddhist or whatever. We can see them as, but they're not the enemy. Right? That's something that we talked about this weekend at the, at the men's retreat. They're not the enemy. They're prisoners. They're victims of the enemy. They're prisoners of war. And as warriors, you know, we talked about men being warriors, but ladies, y'all are in the same boat with us as soldiers of Christ. Our job is to rescue those people out of that dominion. Now, we don't actually rescue them. The Redeemer does that. But we can show them where the hole in the fence is, right? So getting back to Scripture, in your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Here's where Jesus is going to deal with another God. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? 
And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This is Jesus dealing with a person who is engaged with another God. That the other guy doesn't even see that it's another God. That's the danger we have as believers. We don't even see that it's another God. But it is exactly that. The man comes to him, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? There's something I want to, there, there's something I have to do. Do we not do that today? I want this thing. I want that promotion at work. What do I have to do to get that? Right? Uh, I, I want this new thing in my home. I want this new vehicle. What, what do I have to do to retain? So it's natural for us as, as people to do this. So he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? What good deed must I do? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? Remember relativism, situational ethics? Jesus is saying, well, let's first, let's back up here a minute and let's talk about what is good. Because there is only one who is good. So on that standard alone, you fail. When we come to good, when we come to God and we say, my good works, I've done all of these things for you. What does he say? If that's your standard right there, you have failed. Because that's not what brings me pleasure. It is God's pleasure we seek. It is His glory that, to glorify Him that we seek, right? So Jesus confronts him about what is good. But He says, uh, the reality is, to this young man, if you want to enter heaven, keep the commandments. Keep these general orders. Keep these standards that God has set for you about what is right and wrong. And what does the guy say to him? Which ones? Is it two out of three? Is it four out of five? Is it all but one? What is it? So what does that mean? That means that he's recognized that he's not keeping all ten. Right? Because if he said, keep the commandments, I'm good. I keep all ten commandments. So he sees which ones. He sees that he's lacking something. One of the things that we talked about this weekend was a dangerous place for we, uh, for us as believers to get to when we think we're good. I'm good with God. I am okay with God. Everything is right. That's a dangerous place for us to be because we're looking at our self-sufficiency. A good, healthy place to be is, God, where would you change me? Where would you hone me? Where would you shape me? So he asks him which ones. And Jesus leads him into a place where he's going to confront him with something. Isn't that awesome how, how God does that? He leads us to a place of confrontation. My prayer this morning is that as we go through God's Word and as the things that we've talked about, that we're confronted with something. Because only through that confrontation are we changed. So in this confrontation, Jesus leads into this by saying, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's a checklist. 
do these things. And the guy, as he's hearing these things, got it, done, what, good, oh, all right, oh, oh, this is sounding good. Right? So he says, all of these I've kept. I'm good. And then Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go and sell. So right here is where Jesus is confronting him. Perfection is what is demanded. If you want to have eternal life, perfection is what is demanded. And this guy who just a minute ago, I'm all good, is all right, has come to a place of, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect. Right? So if that's the standard of perfection, what hope do we have? We'll get to that in just a minute. So Jesus says, if you be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. So the, real, the, the man's real core issue in worshiping this other God was his comfort, his entitlement, his standing, his position, his things. That's what God he was worshiping. Well, praise God, none of us deal with that. None of us are... are Resting in our things and our position and our comfort, right? Well, let's be honest with you. We do. And in doing that, we are serving another God. We are worshiping the God of comfort. And so when Jesus confronts him with this specific thing, he's rejected. He walks away. I was listening to a a sermon last night by Matt Chandler. Thank you, Breck, uh, for playing that. On the, We were driving home from the men's retreat, and Breck plugged that into his radio, so we listened to Matt Chandler preach last night. It was awesome. And he talked about living our, our lives this way, about living our lives of comfort and, and the right home and, and all of these things. And what he says, when we serve that God, when we worship that God of comfort, we're always in debt. We talked about the pleasure God and how we can serve the pleasure God and that hole will never be filled and will never be satisfied. It's the same thing when we try and serve that God of comfort. It will never be satisfied. We have to have one more thing. A nice newer car. A brand, now, I'm not saying you shouldn't buy a new car. I'm saying that because I just bought still a car just a little while ago. So I'm confessing that. <laughs> so, so but, but, you know, when it becomes an... Uh, an illicit desire, something that is not within God's will, right? That's another God that we're serving. And finally, uh, serving other gods, we can look to, you don't have to look in your Bibles right now because we we studied this in Genesis chapter 3. The original setting up of another God. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, and the liar, the deceiver, tempted them, and they engaged in behavior that God had strictly forbidden, what happened? Sin was introduced into the world and became a plague for generations. Right? So what other God were they serving? Themselves. What was Satan's life? You will become... Like God. You will be able, like relativism says, you will be able to define what is right and wrong. You will be sovereign. You will be control over your own life. 
That's the lie that happened then. The same thing happens to us so quickly and so easily. I want to be in control of what happens in my life. I want to be able to define what is right and wrong. I want to be able to to lead things my way. We're setting ourselves up as that idol. The false God that God has said here in His command to not do. Have no other gods before me. Including, and first of all, yourself. So the confrontation, the challenge is, which of these gods am I flirting with? Maybe you're not actively engaged in serving them, but you could be flirting with them. There's a song by Todd Agnew that I really like, and he says, holding on to God's hand with one hand and flirting with the devil with my eyes. As Christians, we can do that so easily. J.K. Uh, G.K. Chesterton says, the problem with the Christian faith is not that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. Sometimes in our walk, things get difficult and we shrink back. We pull back from this difficulty we're engaged in and we don't try and we don't move forward and we don't progress in our walk. Then our walk becomes stumbled and false. So we do, do we have a hope of walking this walk when it seems too difficult? Yeah, we do. But if we seek to find that hope in our own strength, the answer is no. There is no hope. But God, when, when Jesus left this earth physically, He made a promise that there would be a comforter, that He would send the Holy Spirit to indwell in us, to participate in our lives, to become our new nature. That is the hope we have of walking this walk, of not flirting with other gods. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. The command to have no other gods is not an egomaniacal entity who is saying, I'm all letting a bag of chips and I don't want you to do anything else. But it is a compassionate Father that knows that anything other than Himself will leave us enslaved. Today, you're in one of three places in your life. You're strong in your walk. You're not perfect, but you're strong in your walk. You have an active prayer life. You do uh, consistent reading in the Word. You have fellowship with believers. You're doing all of these things. You're engaged with the Holy Spirit. You may be in that place in your life. Or you may be a believer. You've accepted Christ in your life, but you're, you're living in such a way that is not pleasing to God. Is not following His will. You, you know who you are, if, if that's the place you are. Or you're in a third place of your life, and, and frankly, you're hearing this stuff and saying, doesn't make sense. That stuff he was saying about humanism, I, I kind of believe that. That's the, the stuff about relativism, that, that, that is true. 
You haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You may be in that place today. So I challenge you, if you are in that place today, but God is tugging at your heart saying, that is not truth. That is not the way you need to live. Then don't leave this place today without seeking out an elder. The elders are going to be standing in the back in just a little bit. Without seeking out an elder and saying, I want to live a different life. I want to be a new creation. I don't want to serve these other false gods. Then don't leave this place without that today. If, if you're in that place in your walk where you're stumbling spiritually, go to an elder. Ask for prayer. Ask for guidance. But if you're in that place where you're strong in your walk, not perfect, then you know somebody in one of those two other places. Pray for that person today. God has redeemed us, rescued us, and given us a new heart. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, we praise you for who you are. You are the one true God. Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I am. Father, let us see you for who you are and for who we are not. Father, when we begin to flirt with these other things, when we begin to be tugged in different ways that are, that are apart from your sovereign will, confront us. Bring it to our face, Father, that we are not living in that way. God, your promise is that you, you are a breath away, that you stand ready to welcome us back as a compassionate Father to love on us, But as a just Father, you confront us with our sin. We thank you, Father, for what you're going to do through us and to us this day and in the following weeks to come. We say this in Jesus' precious, holy and almighty name. Amen.